Hello and welcome to the Cinementalist podcast for Cinementalist.com. My name's Andy. Sitting next to me is Floki, our bearded dragon mascot. And sitting opposite me on his webcam connection, as usual, is Liam. How's it going, mate? Loving our Siberian light weather. How are you? It is Siberia light, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's the coldest I've recorded for a very long time. This is one of those ones where Canadians and Swedes, etc., really start laughing at us because it is the heady depths of minus two <laughs> in England at the moment. And despite the fact that we're locked in and we can only go outside to go to the shops, we're still complaining about it. So our national character. But yes, it's nippy, but we, sh- you know, we shouldn't be going outside anyway, so why are we complaining? Yeah, it was more of a pain, I think, when we were locked down in summer. Because the weather's really nice outside, and yet there's nowhere to go, really. You go for a walk, and that's it. I missed pub gardens, definitely. I have to step out on the patio to smoke out of consideration for who I share my house with. Otherwise, I'd just be stinking out of that room, especially mm. in this fucking weather. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I uh, had a fantastic toothache over the weekend. That was fun for me. Excellent. Yeah. So I you know, dropped that into the podcast. No, no emergency dentistry. No, well, yeah, I thought about it. I think if you rub, like, Bongella and stuff on it... Yeah, we didn't have any, which is weird, because there's always a tube around somewhere. But I've got a wisdom tooth coming through at the back, and what it's doing is pushing forward on all my other teeth, which makes them feel like they're being clamped in a tiny little vice. I like this trajectory that we're going with this Cinementalist podcast. <laughs> we're now we're complaining arseholes who complain about everything. I know. Not, <laughs> not, not, not just movies that we don't like, it's just... Well, yeah, movies we like as well, but it's very difficult to favourably review Toothache. I don't think anyone's ever had Toothache and thought, that was actually a really pleasant experience. I enjoyed that. Maybe you can commute the unpleasantry of the Toothache into uh, a passionate review, be it disdain or admiration. Yeah, well, the stuff I've got to review this week is actually pretty good. That's so, easier said than done. Yeah. So I know yeah, if yeah. I was suffering with it, I'd just be a prick. So. Yeah, well, like, every, everything I reviewed, um, actually, I, I don't think I've done a negative review in a while. What was the last thing I reviewed negatively? Well, the the one thing that springs to mind, well, actually, as a matter of fact, the two things that spring to mind when you mention your negative reviews, I immediately think of Cursed and The Duchess, but they were a while ago. They were a while ago, They were yeah. a while ago, yeah. I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been no, doing my best to find the good yeah, stuff. For, no, uh, nothing for with immediacy. Oh, I know that you, um, you weren't particularly enamoured with uh, how... Star Trek, whatever it is, tale. Oh, Star Trek Discovery season three finale, I thought but, was but, terrible. But yeah. By and large, by and large, mostly positive. I mostly think. all right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, there we go. And yeah, a mixed uh, response to the expanse last week, but that's for problems that the show couldn't really avoid. So yeah, there you well, go. You know, mi- mixed and shitting all over, or, you know, in different things. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> um, speaking of critical reviews, actually, this links nicely into my first news piece this week. Because uh, this is an article from the Scotsman.com and uh, it's entitled Legitimately Horrendous Film Critics Mall Louise Linton's Directorial Debut. So, uh, Louise Linton, for those who don't know, I didn't for a start, uh, is the wife of Stephen Munchen, the former US Treasury Secretary, and has apparently received a critical mauling ahead of its release. It's entitled uh, Me, You, Madness, a feature also written and produced by Miss Linton and in which she takes the starring role as a bisexual serial killer come hedge fund manager and is due to hit streaming services in the US tomorrow. So this is an up-to-date article. It will be out by the time this podcast is released. The Fets educated actor, regarded by many of her critics as a totem of the Trump era's brash, wealth-focused culture, has said she raised the money for the movie via friends and family and that there will be people who love it and people who hate it. If the initial critical reception is any guide, she is right, at least on the latter count. (laughs) One reviewer described it as the first legitimately horrendous movie of 2021. Another tartly observed, to call this a vanity project is an insult to vanity projects. 
<laughs> uh, Frank Sheck, who's a critic with The Hollywood Reporter, described the film as exceedingly laborious and singled out its tiresome attempts to send up its star's image and not take itself too seriously. The lead performers don't so much wink at the camera as leer at it and threaten to lick it all over. And we're treated to so many lascivious shots of Linton's toned, bared physique that one would accuse the filmmaker of sexual exploitation if it weren't Linton herself. But then again, she never did know how to read a room. <laughs> so what do you reckon? Do you want to take that one or shall I? It's just it's apparently releasing well, tomorrow. Well, I, I, have, I have to see it. Yeah, I have to say, especially based on that alone, it's got me. I mean, worth a it, right? bisexual serial killer turned hedge, hedge fund manager. Yeah, I mean, that's right. A story of our times. If I if I see that pithy synopsis anywhere, or my immediate reaction is, hmm, okay. But the fact that it has been savaged to the extent that it has from those quips there, off. I mean, I'll, I'll gladly take this one. But if you uh, if you've got a hankering to see it as well, maybe we could do a co-review. I don't know. I think what's a lot easier actually is just reading out other people's reviews on the podcast and just giving them credit, like you know, they work for us. Um, Robert Kojda, a member of the Critics' Choice Association, awarded the movie a single star, describing it as akin to. Watching a Tom and Jerry cartoon, only something set in the real world that doesn't abuse all logic but the rules of its own inner workings. Even basic continuity errors that exist in every movie are blown up to sizable proportions here. A character has his hand sliced open but is bandaged up in the next shot. It's a one-note movie that is never clever, amusing, entertaining or anything less than fucking irritating. (laughs) (laughs) And last one here, uh, Peter Hammond, chief film critic for Deadline Hollywood, assessed Me You Madness as a colourful but mindless confection, specked with god-awful garishness. His review, perhaps the most positive of those released so far, concluded, It is dumb. Yes, dumb. Fun if you're in the mood, but not much else. So I can't wait. I, yeah, I think that's... I'm, look, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, yeah, I genuinely think that might be really entertaining to, uh, to review for I'm really audience. hoping yeah. that it's... Well, everything I hope it is. <laughs> what would be really funny is if we both watched it and liked it. But by the sounds of it, I mean, with that sort of consensus, I doubt it. We do try and go into everything we review blind, but the reviews on this have been so savage. It's difficult to get away from the fact that this is being trashed in uh, in every quarter. How long until those critics are accused of having a Trump derangement syndrome? Because yeah. I haven't heard of that syndrome being off, off the books, even though he is uh, left office. So. Mm. Another article here, I thought you'd find this interesting. Well, yeah, both of us really, because we're huge Stanley Kubrick fans. Mm. A lost Stanley Kubrick movie, Lunatic at Large, is finally set to be made after the rights were optioned by producers Bruce Hendricks and Gallon Walker. Production is slated to begin in fall 2021. The film noir thriller is one of three movie stories found in Kubrick's archive after his death in 1999. He'd intended to direct the 70-page treatment, which he co-wrote with author and screenwriter Jim Thompson at some point. The opportunity to bring a Stanley Kubrick project to the screen after so many years is a dream come true. We look forward to making a film in keeping with his unique style and vision, Walker said in a statement. Jim Thompson, the killer inside me, Pop 1280, Jim Thompson. I believe so, yes. Holy shit. Mm. That sounds really cool. Well, I don't get too excited because uh, Hendrick's producing credits include Michael Bay's Pearl Harbor, uh, the first two installments of the Pirates of the Caribbean franchise, and uh, Walker, of course, did 9-11 and the live-action Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. So I would, you know, not to really get down on people's careers or anything, but if you're going to do Kubrick, you better get it right. If you're going to say, oh, this is a Stanley Kubrick treatment and we're going to shoot it like Kubrick, that's some hallowed ground you're treading on there for film nuts. Yeah, I, I'm not really liking the credentials there, but let's wait and see. You never know. I mean, <laughs> a lot of filmmakers start off looking at Kubrick as sort of you know, the basics. Like, if, you know, Kubrick is one of those all-time auteurs of cinema. 
So perhaps they can do a, a passable impression. Because that's all you're really going to be able to do with that, isn't it? I don't think, yeah, especially the way they're talking about it, the way they're going front first, going, this is a Kubrick treatment. Uh, we're going to do it as Kubrick. There's no other way of doing it, is there? You can't really take that story and make it your own. You have to try and envision what one of the greatest minds of cinema would do with this thing that he was obviously, obviously he had like the visual idea of it in his head. You're going to have to try and emulate that. That's a, a challenge that I think most filmmakers will balk out. But could they not give it to someone who arguably has some modicum of seniority or who has displayed some real aptitude? I mean... I'd like to see Nicholas Winding Refn. Nicholas Winding like Refn, or even take. N- not that he's largely comparable to Kubrick, but even somebody like PTA, who is a mm. very, very skilled director and has already created some really serious opuses in his career, to somebody with a bit of... Yeah, real flair and real clout and somebody who can actually make a very strong, substantive... It sounds really snobby, doesn't it? But I know exactly what you mean. I mean, someone with a bit more of an art house background. Well, yeah. There's Kubrick, the colour palette shifts and that sort of stuff. It's it's not easy to emulate. So fingers crossed on that one anyway. We'll see. Well, I mean, name a film by Kubrick that you could easily fit into the category commercial film. I mean, what's, mm. what, is, what is actually a film by him that you could advertise as a summer blockbuster that the, the most casual filmgoer would want to go and see? You could do that with, I mean, the, the inaugural blockbuster or what is considered the inaugural blockbuster, something like Jaws. You could do it with that. You could do it with a plethora of action films and stuff. But I, I don't think there's any film by Kubrick that is not really loved by anyone except proper cinephiles. Maybe I'm being, I don't know, unfair and elitist there. I don't mean to be. But. I don't know. I mean, The Shining is massively popular. I'd say it's probably the closest thing he ever did to a really commercial. The only people I know who love The Shining are people who are really into their films. Yeah? Yeah. Myself, I mean, again, that's anecdotal, but I have spoken to an abundance of people who absolutely hate it because they think that it's too, it's too opaque, it's too slow. Really? Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. Again... Oh, fair enough. Just yeah. Talking, but yeah, that's, that's just my, it's my take. Uh, Netflix are currently producing some original movies. They've got okay. a lot of content in the works. One of their biggest ones, apparently, is going to be called Slumberland, and it's going to feature Jason Momoa. Jason Momoa. Mm. This is apparently an upcoming high-budget fantasy film directed by Francis Lawrence, who's known for his work on Constantine, I Am Legend, The Hunger Games, Red Sparrow, and a lot of music videos. We'll star Jason Momoa, who who actually worked with Lawrence on the Apple Plus TV series C, which I really, really enjoyed. I really rated C, although a lot of critics didn't. And um, I thought it was actually a really good use of Jason Momoa. It was the first time I'd really seen him do a performance that wasn't just being big caveman hard dude. You know, there's actually some nuance there. So there's some interesting stuff going on here, I think. Uh, in Netflix's Slumberland, Jason Momoa is set to start as Flip, a nine-foot-tall creature that is half man, half beast, has shaggy fur and long curved tusks. This apparently is based on a 1905 comic strip called Little Nemo in Slumberland by Windsor McKay. So he's nine-foot-tall and he has tusks. Mm-hmm. And he's covered in shaggy hair. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting. Yeah, well, you know, who else <laughs> but Jason Momoa, right? Yeah, true enough. Like I sort yeah. of get the casting on that one for definite. And finally, final bit of news this week, the uh, ever-talked-about, although slow-to-release, Jurassic World Dominion. You thought I was going for James Bond there, weren't you? I, I did. Know. No, we, I really did. We're not doing James Bond chat anymore. <laughs> we finished finish with that. 
Uh, Jurassic World 3, this appears to actually be finished at this point. Jurassic World 3 star Sam Neill has promised that audiences have a lot to look forward to when the sequel arrives next year, revealing that the film's producers could have made a six-hour movie from all the footage that was shot. Uh, Jurassic World Dominion will see Neil return to his Jurassic Park role as paleontologist Dr. Alan Grant after 20 years away from the franchise, with Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum also reprising their respective Jurassic Park roles as Dr. Ellie Sattler and Dr. Ian Malcolm. Uh, with Jurassic World leads Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard also back as Owen Grady and Claire Deering, the stage is set for a Diplodocus-sized dinosaur adventure, and Neil has told Variety that we can expect something, in quotes, big. Big. Mm-hmm. It kind of worries me when people talk up like, oh, we we could have easily made a six-hour film. That sort of says to me, and this could be me being hypercritical, this, that says to me you didn't really know what you were shooting. Because <laughs> I get it. Like You're always going to shoot more footage than you need, obviously, for obvious reasons. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then see what it comes together like in the editing room. But for a film that is probably going to be, what, two, two and a half hours, they're all pretty epic, the latest ones. Did you really need six hours worth of worth of content that suggests to me that it's like you know the script's a bit of a mess we'll sort it out in the editing room and that often does not a good film make but we shall see I mean I I absolutely adore the 1993 Jurassic Park obviously but if it were it, it is exactly the right length mm-hmm. if, if that folded over into three or four hours that would be yeah. too much you know fabulous practical effects and performances and pace and scripting notwithstanding that would be absurd. It's not the kind of picture that's made for that. I think. No, I, I prefer them to be more like hour and a half to two hours, punchy in out. Yeah, you know, I know with the original Crichton novels, there's a lot of existential stuff, man versus nature, all that kind of stuff. But the films are much more they're roller coaster rides. Yeah, it is. and that's fine. You know, there's nothing wrong with a roller coaster ride with dinosaurs chasing you around and everything. But I, it seems to be with the previous two films, they're definitely building up to that whole in gen is now. You know, trying to produce dinosaurs for the military and that kind of stuff. So really closer to the books in a way that perhaps the original Jurassic Park wasn't. But what the original Jurassic Park got was pace and fun and slick action sequences. Yes. Yeah, which uh, if you're going to go down the existential route with it, it better be damn good. And shooting six hours worth of it does not to me say that you know what you're doing with the script. No, that that kind of stuff needs to be left to the likes of Daz Boot, Prince of the City, Once Upon a Time mm. in America. Certain certain concepts can take it, can't the they? Jurassic That's Park franchise. Yeah. I mean, Jurassic Park, at least the very first Jurassic Park, it is a, it's an incredibly intelligent film. Mm. But again, it's an adrenaline rush. Mm. It may there may be cerebral components to it, but it's essentially keeping you on the edge of your seat. Yeah. And, yeah, so <laughs> we could have easily made six hours out of it. It's not a good thing. I agree with you. I also find it quite funny that as soon as we started talking about Jurassic Park and dinosaurs, Floki has decided to go dancing against his window. <laughs> so I do apologise if you can hear any clicks or taps at any point. He normally calms down a little bit. But it, the thought of dinosaurs got him really excited. Oh, it's the uh, magnitude of his ancestors. Just <laughs> it's, it's, it's making him think big. He is a mini dinosaur. Sometimes it does freak you yeah. out a bit when you when you hold him. You're like, yeah, there is pretty much no difference. <laughs> but yeah, so he's normally the noise cancelling software takes it out. We, we should hopefully not be a really, really annoying podcast. No more than normal in terms of our audio. Absolutely, yeah. Okie dokie then. Well, uh, enough fucking around, as we always say. <laughs> Liam, you've got a couple of film reviews this week. Where are we going first? Right, well, we were discussing Space Weepers, the new Korean space opera that has debuted on Netflix. Yes, last week. Sort of seemed to come out of nowhere for me. Yeah, directed by Joe Sung-hee. So this takes place in the year 2092, 
and Earth has become virtually inhospitable. It's the air is deeply polluted, trees are dying in an instant, it's ravaged by poverty. Earth just absolutely fucking sucks. Everyone has to walk around wearing gas masks. And in this world, there is an extremely powerful business conglomerate machine, what have you, known as the UTS Corporation. And the CEO of the UTS Corporation is a man named James Sullivan, played by Richard Armitage. And what Mr. Sullivan would like to do to rectify the calamity on Earth is to make Mars a hospitable planet that he terms his new Eden. Also oh, terraforming. Essentially, but term, yeah. by use of uh, nanotechnology. Mm-hmm. Problem is that in order to ascend to this new Eden, you have to have UTS citizenship. And a great bulk of the Earth's population do not have that. And we gradually become privy to why, because even though Mr. Sullivan presents himself as a very benevolent, philanthropic billionaire, he has got a few nefarious cards up his sleeve, and there's certain types of people that he doesn't want in his New Eden because of character traits, etc., etc. So many people who are not able to acquire UTS citizenship make their living as space sweepers. They get sent up into orbit from the Earth's atmosphere, and they fly around in outer space on ships collecting space debris, selling it to the corporation for a meagre profit in order to get by. And one such ship is commanded by Captain Jang, played by Kim Tyree. And uh, you have Captain Jang's second-in-command, who is Tai Ho, who's played by Song Joon-ki. Tai Ho is effectively the protagonist of sorts. He approaches the crew's, the ship's crew, in something of an ensemble fashion. But Tai Ho is, for all intents and purposes, the protagonist. And they're joined by Tiger Park, who's another member of the ship. He's an ex-drug dealer who has reformed. He's gone out of prison, and now he's joined up with these guys. And they've also got a resident robot on board named Bubs. So these guys are flying around. They're collecting their their debris. They're getting into all sorts of scrapes and relating stories about their past. And it alternates between sort of slapstick humour and poignant moments of exposition. And eventually, the space-sweeping crew comes across Dorothy, who is a young girl that is actually a very dangerous humanoid WMD. And many forces are hunting around outer space for Dorothy because she's worth a lot of money and is extraordinarily dangerous. And this includes terrorist groups who would like to use her for their own ends. And and there are also other factions with uh, different intents, maybe slightly more benevolent intents. And all the while, the crew are, they alternate between being terrified of Dorothy and then being slightly ambivalent about her because Dorothy, the kid in question, or the destructive robot in question who they find mired amongst all this space debris, doesn't seem to exhibit a lot of robotic behaviour or sinister behaviour, even though she is the absolute spitting image of the child slash WMD that is ubiquitous all over the news in this film. She doesn't really act like you'd expect a humanoid who is on the precipice of blowing into smithereens and taking everything in its surroundings would act. So the crew, they're initially about to sell Dorothy off to some parties who are willing to pay big bucks for her, but that doesn't quite go to plan. And amid all this, they're growing ever more attached to her, respectively, and it transpires that Mr. Sullivan, the CEO of UTS, 
wants to get his hands on Dorothy for his own reasons, and he probably isn't as much of a nice guy as we envisage. So there's all of this space opera, wacky action, comedy fused with heavy drama, and we find out more about Tai Ho as the, for all intents and purposes, antagonist, and why he might have a very strong reason to develop paternalistic feelings toward Dorothy, and yada, yada, yada. All the way through this movie, well, I'd say about an hour in, I'd guess, and then for a while after the credits rolled, I sat there thinking to myself, what does this film remind me of? Thematically, in spirits, a lot of the tonal shifts in it, what does it remind me of? And I got to it. I thought, this film reminds me of The Fifth Element. Me and you are massive Fifth Element fans, and we? We, love, we love Luc Besson's mad, wacky sci-fi romp that actually really nicely blends crazy, effervescent humour with some really great stuff about the fate of humanity and mixes some great, awe-inspiring moments of poignancy in there. Space Weepers is a film that I personally summarise as it's like The Fifth Element if The Fifth Element was irredeemable crap. Oh, really? Tonally, it's all over the place. They flip-flop between really weird, clownish, ill-fitting humour and shoved-in moments of exposition that's supposed to you know, give you a warm, fuzzy feeling or well up your tear ducts a little bit. The characters, I ultimately, I didn't care, really care about any of the characters. There are some moments that seem that they're about to lean themselves towards some interesting developments, some interesting arcs. But ultimately, I never really got invested in anyone in this because there's I, there's no actual consistency in any of the characterization. The CGI, there are some moments of intriguing CGI, and the CGI is essentially passable, but it's mismanaged. It's way too fucking long. This is two hours and 17 minutes long. And it's, there's so much of that that could have been excised easily. I could tell a lot of what was coming way before it fucking happened. There was no real element of surprise, intrigue or suspense. Definitely not. It just, oh, I knew I was expecting a bit of fun, a bit of madcap fun, something that may have come in from a bit of left field. I wasn't expecting some sort of grand eye hazard. Because as we said, The Fifth Element is a very crazy film, and in some ways it's a stupid film. Mm. But there's everything about it does coalesce into a singularly nice, fun, heartening piece of work, if you like, even though it's completely crazy and all over the place. It's, it isn't all over the place. It still actually manages to achieve some sort of solidity, which is why it's retained this kind of cult status it has. And this film was trying to do that sci-fi opera with all of this, you know, this wild tonal patterning and similar things about saving humanity and the save, you know, the, the means to which to save humanity is in the last place you look. There's even elements of, such as the voice of Mr. Shadow. There are elements of space sweepers that, re, that seemed like they were trying to evoke that in some ways. If, at least to me, it felt very obvious. Richard Armitage is James Sullivan. I'm not giving a massive amount away, but you'll be able to guess from the moment that he starts speaking that he's a villain. Mm -hmm. His villainous dialogue is absolutely atrocious. And the CGI that amplifies his villainry is god-awful as well. It, this was a massive... Just, I could not wait for this film to end. Well, it it's like, not... It's, it, I know, it seemed like fun. It's not fun. It seemed like it had so much promise, this. I know. Because we're big fans of Korean cinema. Yeah, yeah. Love sci-fi. I mean, Fifth Element comparisons, that to me is one of the 
best and most fun sci-fi adventure rides of all time. But to fall that flat is a, a real disappointment. Yeah, I had high hopes for this. You know, I'd only read about it, to be fair. I hadn't actually seen any trailer or anything about it, but I was, in some form or fashion, looking forward to it. It sounds like I shouldn't have bothered. What was the piece of shit with uh, Schwarzenegger and Jackie Chan? Oh. Journey to China? Oh, well, the yes. Yeah. Sorry, uh, yeah, Did yeah. Did you say something along the lines of that film essentially reeks of cynically made, tacky blockbuster funded by East Asian corporate machines? Yes, East, East Asian and indeed Russian corporate machines. There seems to be some sort of tax write-off as a film. This film uh, has that aura in spades to me. That bad, huh? Yeah, I just thought it was terrible. No, I really want you to watch Journey to China 2, yeah. I believe it is. And, and, I, and, and see whether what you think is the worst film. And I haven't That is and, quite possibly the worst film I've ever seen. Admittedly, I haven't seen Journey to China, but I recall you lending it that kind of description somewhere in that ballpark. There was this and, over, overriding sense that everybody involved had a gun to their heads. Yeah. Like it, it was there for machinations that I couldn't quite figure. Well, Space Weepers is effectively a clone of lots and lots of different strands and devices and stock characters and narrative developments from a whole host of far superior pictures. I wish I could say there's something there's something that stuck out, like a welcome sore thumb, where I went, well, that bit's pretty cool. More of that, please. No, no, I just I really wanted this to end. I was Ultimately, I wasn't impressed by the site. As I said... The CGI isn't a complete and utter crock of shit. There are some cool shots in it, but it's very, very underutilised. Uh, the characterization is boring. I didn't... Did I give a fuck about any of these characters, including Dorothy, or maybe she's not Dorothy, maybe she's a real kid, not? Was the villain compelling in any way? Or was, was the villain actually menacing as opposed to being really terribly written and annoying? No. <laughs> does, wow. the, does the film tell its story in a, in a measure that could conceivably be called concise no <laughs> so uh literally no redeeming yeah big, big disappointment there man i just i hated it i thought it was I thought it was really rubbish oh, well, <laughs> you've you saved me two hours and 17 yes. minutes of my life anyway, and i was so thank you for and that. i was uh conversing with a few people about this earlier who had seen it and pretty with uniformity they all said to me in one way or another well what the fuck do you expect it's just this and that and somebody actually said the fifth element and I said to them don't you dare <laughs> no don't you dare because I had the same thought but don't you dare do any favourable comparison between this film and that film because you know you're being disingenuous that's not true don't tell <laughs> don't go around telling people that this is some sort of really fun lovely little sci-fi romp that has its tongue in its cheek that you can get lost in because it's not it's bollocks and it fails in every single count Fair enough. And if you say otherwise, you're misleading people. <laughs> so, well, we wouldn't want to do that. So we? no to Space Sweepers. Okay. And also, a bit of a little time with your review of Godless last week. Mm -hmm. I remember saying about how, I don't, just to clarify, I believe I said it last week, but just to make it absolutely clear, I don't dislike Westerns at all. They are just a, it's just a genre that I don't get all hot under the collar about yeah not like i do with gangster films etc etc but it, i do not i do not have any fundamental aversion to westerns at all and i remember you talking about godless which i've still yet to see but i really really do want to see and in fact that also came out in 2017 so it was a catch-up um, well someone pointed out the other way just a very quick side on that point uh, a lot of what i've been reviewing recently because i've been doing my netflix deep dives has come out in 2017 
Yeah. 2017 seems to sort of be a golden year that we didn't realise was a golden year. Yeah, well... Until you look back on it. I actually watched... I didn't see this when it initially was released. Well, I mean, it would have been released in 2017 in the States, but I suppose it wouldn't have actually hit UK cinemas until something like January of 2018, but it was a, it's officially a 2017 release. But this is uh, Hostiles by Scott Cooper. Now, I really like Scott Cooper. I love Crazy Heart with Jeff Bridges. I thought that was great. I was a really big fan of Out of the Furnace with Christian Bale and Woody Harrison as well. Love that. Really love Black Mass with Johnny Depp. For me, that's the only film where I go, Johnny Depp's fucking awesome in that. I know a lot of people won't like that, but it's, that is easily his greatest term. Well, this is set in 1892 in New Mexico. And as the film opens, Rosalie Quaid, who's played by the brilliant Rosamund Pike, she is a homesteader living with her hubby and three kids out on the plains. And she's giving her kids an English lesson while her husband Wesley does some work out front. Wesley spies some sinister-looking figures in the distance who quickly charge forth on horseback toward the Quaid homestead. He obviously starts panicking. He thinks they're a bunch of horse rustlers, but it turns out they're actually a Comanche war party, and they proceed to brutally murder each family member, save for Rosalie, who survives by hiding under a rock, clutching hold of her infant son, who has been fatally shot by one of these Comanche war party members. So right off the bat, you know you're in for a pretty austere ride because it's for, a, very similar to Godless's uh, Dead Child. It's, well, yeah, it's, this a is, Dead Child at the beginning yeah, says we're going this into is, um, territory. Turn off yeah. now if you don't have a stomach. This is a, right. this is a hardcore opening sequence, mm. and it, it stays with you, and it brilliantly, brilliantly acted by Rosamund Pike, who just plays an instantly traumatized woman in a, in a really, really believable manner. So we cut from this to Fort Berenger, still in New Mexico, where Captain Joseph Blocker, played by Christian Bale. Captain Blocker is a US cavalry veteran who, after years fighting in the frontier wars, which a lot of people call the Indian Wars, but I'd rather not because frontier wars are a, a pretty much a ubiquitous synonym. Uh, he's very, very hardened, cynical, pitiless kind of guy. He really hates Native Americans in general after so many years rucking with them and after losing so many close friends and colleagues at the hands of various tribes that they've had clashes with. And the first time we see him, his crew of soldiers, they're terrorising um, an Apache family, I believe, and he's just sitting there on horseback looking completely bereft of emotion. Very hard-hearted guy, arguably quite callous. Well, Captain Blocker is on the eve of retirement, and before he's able to ride off into the sunset, his superior, Abraham Biggs, played by Stephen Lang, the brilliant Stephen Lang of Don't Breathe, he says to him, you've got one final job, essentially. Chief Yellowhawk, Wes Studi, he has been imprisoned at the fort for about seven years now, along with his son and daughter and daughter-in-law and grandson. Now, Yellowhawk and Captain Blocker have some history because they fought against each other. They encountered each other in many skirmishes during the Frontier Wars, and Yellowhawk personally butchered several of Blocker's very dear friends and comrades. So uh, Captain Blocker really, really hates this guy, and he says to Biggs, no, I'm not doing it. There's no way you can get me to do it. Biggs says to him, okay, then. Well, it's been decreed by President Harrison, so if you don't do it, not only will you lose your pension, but we're going to court-martial you. You don't have a choice. You need to do it, and you need to do it now. So Blocker, he 
as I said, he doesn't have any choice in the matter whatsoever. He's given uh, a crew of cavalry personnel, really good cast this as well. It's, so you've got Jesse Plemons, isn't it? Rory Cochran's in it. Timothy Chalamet, Jonathan Majors. Um, Stephen Lang is... Uh, I is really it? like Jesse Plemons. Jesse, Jesse Plemons, yeah. yeah Meth Damon, actor. he's absolutely brilliant. Um, Stephen Lang, when he's when he's giving the order to Captain Block, he's also flanked by Bill Camp, who is a fantastic character actor, and uh, the likes of uh, Peter Mullen shows up as well. It's got oh, a wow. really, really, really great supporting cast. This well, Blocker acquiesces, acquie hardly acquiesces, as that essentially has an air carries an air of reluctancy to it. That term, he acquiesces with absolute bitter reluctance, but he nevertheless sets off to escort Yellowhawk and his family back to their tribal homelands in Montana. It should also be mentioned that Chief Yellowhawk is dying from cancer at this point as well. They set off on the trail, and Blocker makes no secret of his extreme acrimonious feelings toward Yellowhawk, but Yellowhawk doesn't actually have any interest in dueling with Blocker or trading any animosity with him in any way. He just wants to get back home, and if he's got to go there with his sworn enemy leading the way, then that's the way it's got to be. As they're venturing north, they come across the Quaid homestead, and they find Rosalie, as played by Rosamund Pike, still clutching her son in a state of complete and utter shock. And she, play, she does play this brilliantly, Pike. And Blocker offers her some clothing, some foods, and says, we're ultimately going to Montana, but we're stopping in Fort Winslow in Colorado, which is obviously a lot closer than there. If you like, you can travel with us. We'll keep you fed. We'll have a fire every night. You can have a tent. And I'll see if uh, we can make arrangements there for you to have quarter there for a while or maybe get taken somewhere else. But we, I don't really want to leave you out here among all this. You, she's sitting in, in the cinders of her burnt-out home after the Comanches have mullered it. And so she agrees to go along. So that's fundamentally the setup. It's about this group making their way from New Mexico all the way to Montana and the many dangers they face along the way and the possibility of understanding being achieved between Blocker and Yellowhawk in terms of their similarities that especially Blocker would not readily admit to and this kind of humanistic connection that they forge because they've gone through a whole host of stuff separately, but now they're in a situation where they have no choice but to go through certain things together. So it's essentially it's essentially one of them, isn't it? It's white man. We're not so different, yeah, you and I. White man, Native American. Yes, it is. We're not so different, you and I. This film got some rather positive reviews all in all, but a lot of them were very middling. But I've got to admit, I found something really special in Hostiles. I really liked it. I've liked the... Well, it's four feature films he's come out with so far, Scott Cooper, so it's not an enormous filmography. But I really liked Hostiles. I thought that Christian Bale's performance was excellent, absolutely brilliant. This is one of my... This has become one of my favourite Christian Bale performances, which is... On the surface, a strange thing to say because he spends a lot of it being rather gruff and silent and just emoting facially. And I find his response to traumas that he encounters along the way to be very, very palpable. Just great displays of authentic emotion on Bale's part. I really bought him as Blocker. Um, same with Rosamund Pike. I think Rosamund Pike steals the show with her performance. She's absolutely phenomenal in this as Rosalie. Really, really 
gets into the kind of extreme mental pain that the character would be having to contend with. I absolutely love the way it's shot, the cinematography, um, Masanobu Takayanagi, absolutely, they shot it in uh, New Mexico, Arizona and Colorado, and he just captures all of the rural locales in that place to a T. It's a gorgeous looking film. Max Richter's score is completely and utterly excellent. It's had some detractions uh, for the Native American characters being underwritten, but I genuinely didn't feel that way. I actually think that Hostiles approaches that in... I would, I would use the word very similar or realistic <laughs> to not be so poncy. Because if you have a US cavalry officer who despises Native Americans, who has been tasked with escorting a family of Native Americans, I think it stands to reason that there's not going to be a whole lot of conversation going on. Sure. Yeah. To me, that that reeks of realism as far as I'm concerned. Taciturn characters and Westerns go together like, you know, the, the proverbial. They do indeed. and Because this was actually, I know that on my blog, I do one brand spanking new film and one favourites, but I, Hostiles was actually my Tuesday review for this week because I wanted to talk about the virtues of this film, which I really think are abundant. Wes Studi as Yellowhawk and his family, they... They're in the background, they exhibit a quiet but very vigilant dignity. And the emotional bonds formed between them and Blocker and Rosalie and everyone, the emotional bonds are articulated through happenings rather than dialogue, rather than instructive dialogue. Don't you find there are so many, especially if you're dealing with Westerns or some sort of historical drama, there's dealing with the, his, with the enmity between, say, white European settlers and Native Americans. They're so suffused with really clunky, on-the-nose dialogue that if, if it doesn't literally say, we're not so different, you and I, mm. it says something along the lines of, oh, you know, uh, sits in chair, understand, white man. So you don't actually, that's bollocks. Mm. And again, I mentioned in the review, I'm wary of arguments from authority, but the National Congress of American Indians actually commended hostiles for presenting Native American peoples in an authentic way and also their languages because Christian Bale actually learnt Cheyenne for wow. hostiles and him and Wes Studi converse in Cheyenne abruptly to deal with. I mean, in fact, the first words that Christian Bale says to Wes Studi in hostiles, in he says it to him in Cheyenne. He says, "Get down," meaning get down off your horse because I want to fight you to death with this big, great big fuck off knife. <laughs> so, initially, the exchanges between them are very, very few and far between, and very, very terse and unfriendly. But largely, they they form a connection. As I said, they, through these shared experiences, they go through things that they would have gone through separately during the height of the frontier wars. They now go through them together, but. The audience is not led along the way through this through dialogue that says, and you should feel like this now. Mm. I do disagree quite passionately with a lot of the detractors of this film because I've read their misgivings and I felt in a completely diametric way to them. I really like Hostiles. I think it's a very powerful film. I think it's really well acted. It resonated with me strongly. And I think it deserves a lot better reputation than it has. Oh, superb. I'll give that a look. Yeah, yeah. Let me know what you think. Well, that brings me on to TV of the week then. Uh, a couple of things to talk about as usual, one of which is a deep dive, of course, although the most recent series of this did come out last year. 
First thing I wanted to talk about is The Alienist. Oh, yeah, yeah, this rings a bell. Yeah, so this is a, an American period drama television series based on the 1994 novel of the same name by Caleb Carr. And uh, so you've got the first series, which is called The Alienist, and the second series, which is based on his follow-up novel, The Angel of Darkness. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> um, this is set in the mid-1890s in New York City, which is a really interesting time period to go into. And The Alienist, of the title is referring, there's a nice little title card at the front of every episode that tells you that psychologists before they were referred to as psychologists, were called alienists Mm. because the terminology at the time for having mental health issues was to be called alien. And so someone that treats someone with mental health issues is indeed an alienist. We have uh, Daniel Brühl, who plays Laszlo Kreisler, and Luke Evans, good old Luke Evans. Luke Evans. As uh, John Shiloh Moore, who is a New York Times cartoonist and illustrator. And this opens on a dark and cold night in New York City, and there has been a murder on a bridge. And Luke Evans, as John Moore, is summoned um, by one of Laszlo's lackeys to essentially go up to this bridge, use your qualifications as somebody from the New York Times, even though he's not a reporter, turn up at this police investigation as a representative of the New York Times so you can get to this murder because Laszlo believes that it's the killer, the perpetrator of this event, has some similarities with patients he's treated in the past. So John Shiloh Moore diligently goes up to this bridge with his pen and pencil, bluffs his way through the police, gets to the uh, murdered corpse. And it is a young boy who has been not only savagely murdered, but dismembered. He's had um, limbs cut off and is missing his genitals. And also, curiously, is wearing a dress. And so the immediate association is back at the time there were brothels that catered to men with certain predilections, particularly young boys dressed as girls. So Laszlo and John Shiloh Moore decide that they're going to take on this case and investigate it privately. And they're going to go and speak to the chief of police about it, who is Theodore Roosevelt. So a nice nice little tie-in with history here is that Theodore Roosevelt was indeed the commissioner of the New York Police Force during the 1890s when this show was I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, he's played by uh, Brian Geraghty very well, actually. And Theodore Roosevelt was an old classmate of uh, Laszlo Chrysler and decides whilst not giving him the entire resources of the police department, he's got problems in that the police department is very corrupt. He's only taken over recently. The ex-chief of police who's supposed to be retired is still sort of running the show behind the scenes. Yeah. So he's got interdepartmental problems. But he says to Laszlo, look, you know, I can't really endorse you properly. I can give you some resources. Uh, one of these resources being Sarah Howard, who's played by Dakota Fanning. Okay, yeah, cool. And she is the first woman to be a member of the New York police force. Uh, but a lot of the guys there, obviously, it's very machismo back in those days. As the first woman, she's not really given any respect. Theodore Roosevelt doesn't really like this, so he says, well, you know what, she's actually really useful. You can use her to help you with your investigation. And so they begin to investigate this grisly murder and try and find out if it's got any similarities with patients that Laszlo Chrysler has treated before and as to whether alienism, as it's called, as a, what would you describe it? Back then it was viewed as more of a pseudoscience, whereas today, of course, psychology is regarded as an actual science. Back then people were very um, wary of it as a principle. That you so, can, like in equivalent terms, they kind of they saw alienists as being a bit witch doctory. Yeah, they sort of regarded in the same view as um, phrenology and uh, what's the oh, what was the thing? Uh, woo, 
Yeah. There's another term for the yeah, yeah. yeah um, mysticism and all that kind of stuff. Load of hocus pocus. Load of bollocks. Load of hokey, yeah, 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 absolutely. So off they go. I mean, there's an immediate comparison to be made here, of course. Laszlo Chrysler as this um, prodigy of uh, burgeoning science and investigative logic and his um, lackey, John Moore, who is not necessarily the world's most intelligent man, but he's very dutiful and he wants to help Laszlo out because he's his friend. There's an obvious comparison to be made, of course, between Sherlock Holmes and Watson. And so it would be easy, I think, from that description. I think maybe a few people watched the trailer and thought, well, what they're doing here is Sherlock Holmes. There's some nice discrepancies to that idea, though. I mean, yes, it is sort of the Holmes and Watson dynamic. You've got one um, savant who's a very socially awkward. He's got odd mannerisms. He's a bit OCD. He speaks in rapid-fire sentences. Everyone around him regards him as just a bit of a creep, to be quite honest. But underneath, of course, he has a heart of gold. Mm. It's also revealed that he has a withered arm from childhood that bothers him greatly. And uh, it's a little bit of a giveaway. That one. I think it's in episode two or episode three that's revealed. So he's obviously got troubles of his own. The thing that really sells the alienist more than anything else is the really beautiful, grimy, horrible, high production value version of 1890s New York. Okay, an easy comparison to make here, and I think it's a valid and an apt one, would be Gangs of New York, but a bit later on. The sets are really, really fantastic. The CGI is so good, it's just almost not noticeable whatsoever. You're looking at these shots and going, well, I know that has to be CGI because there's no way they would have made the Brooklyn Bridge. But the production values are so up there that it's the grittiness of that world, the vigour with which that has been brought to life, really helps to move you into this this murky, misty kind of atmosphere. I reviewed the Frankenstein Chronicles the other week, and there's an app comparison to be made there as well. Yeah. So we're dealing with grisly murders. We're dealing with gritty, grey, dark, macabre themes with a bit of a Sherlock Holmes analogy going on over the top. So there's some real comparisons you can make with the Frankenstein Chronicles. What this has got, which is really nice, I saw some reviews critiquing it that said that the acting's really great, the writing's really good, it looks really fantastic, but it's a bit too slow. I often criticise things on this podcast as being a bit too slow. Actually, I found the opposite. I found that this has actually got some really nice pace to it. It's very tense at points, very thrilling, very gripping. Performances all round are absolutely fantastic. Luke Evans is an actor I really, really rate. Dakota Fanning as well, and of course Daniel Brühl as the lead really work nicely. Everyone's, they sort of put together this motley crew of crime investigators working outside the law and partly with it. Yeah. There's there's all this sort of dynamic going on here, but it's the sheer believability of the world and the shots that really pulls you into this. More than that, actually, I finished season two a couple of days ago and it's not known yet whether they're going to do a season three. It's not been cancelled, but it hasn't been renewed either. And I think that like a lot of shows at the moment, it's essentially sitting in stasis for everyone to get their ducks in a row with regards to budget and what we're going to shoot next, etc. Mm. It was very, very well received by critics. What I found really interesting is by the time I got to the last episode of season two, there's a moment where the characters as a crime fighting group are about to split apart and go their different directions. I think, I don't know whether this is close to the books or not, it could just be in the books and I'm getting this entirely wrong, but I think they did that in a way that, okay, so if it ends now, that's actually quite a good point to end it. Although it definitely leaves the door wide open for everyone to come back together again for a season three. What I wasn't expecting was that I felt a genuine sense of loss as to not seeing more of these characters together again, not having more of this as a show. It is that effective in any show that makes you feel a genuine twinge of sadness 
when it comes to a point where characters have to go their separate directions, I think has done something behind the scenes that has really made you relate and believe and become part of this mm-hmm. world. I desperately want more of this show. How many episodes? Uh, so we've got 10 episodes in season one and eight episodes in season two. So 18 okay. in total. They're all about 45 minutes to an hour long. So quite a lot of content there for those who want to yeah, get into yeah. it. We spoke the other week about Netflix production values. And this isn't a Netflix original. This is originally produced for TNT and is being shown on Netflix. But it's as good looking as just about anything you can find on that service. I know I'm sort of banging on here about the visuals of the piece, but it's so aptly done that you really can't see the difference between when they've done a CGI shot and when they've done a set piece or whatever. It's just got that, that ring of... Not authenticity, because that would be wrong, but it is creating a fictional version of 1890s New York that is so believable, you can kind of smell it. Well, you know how you mentioned Gangs of New York, even though that we've addressed the fact that that film is not without its flaws, the sets are actually very good and they do have... Gorgeous, some of the best. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. And they do have an immersive quality. Scorsese really knocked it out of the park on that one. So this has the same sort of grand visual opulence where we really feel like you could be there. Again, I hate to use this comparison because I think the show has actually got its own thing going on, but if you've got love for um, Sherlock Holmes and Watson, the Poirot murder mysteries, all that kind of stuff, you want a grislier version, up-to-date, looks fantastic, really good performances, that's The Alienist. And I wasn't actually expecting that much from it because I know it made a ripple when it came out and didn't hear a lot about it since, other than I knew that it was quite well-liked as a show. I didn't, you know, it hasn't got a huge hype train sitting behind it, but it is really, really an accomplished piece of work. And I think a lot of people listening that haven't seen it would very much enjoy it. Sounds so, really great. Yeah, it, it's so. it's grisly and it's dark. So again, it depends on your personal tolerance for that sort of thing. I've got a high tolerance for that oh, kind I of thing. It. And yeah, <laughs> as a result, I really, really enjoyed it. So really, really brilliant characterization, great production values. Get on it, please. Fabulous. Hmm. Uh, second thing I want to talk about, this is the documentary piece that came out this week that everybody's talking about, and this is Framing Britney Spears. Oh, yeah, I saw some brief things about this. So, yeah, yeah uh, this was released this week at the time of recording, and it's actually not currently available in the UK. It's screened in the US, and if you're in the US, and I believe some other countries, you can actually watch all of this on YouTube legally, which is kind of cool. Uh, in the UK, it's about to be screened. This is going to come out sometime quite soon. They said spring 2021. So at some point soon, this will be available for easy watching. Um, some would say that if perhaps you subscribe to a VPN service and told that VPN service to use a server from, I don't know, New York, then perhaps it would be available to you on YouTube as well. I don't know whether that's true or not. I'm just speculating. I've heard rumours. I've heard rumours. Yes, absolutely. So this is looking at the strange life of Britney Spears, one of the biggest pop stars in the world, and some would argue the biggest perhaps up next to Beyonce, et cetera, et cetera, and her drop off the radar because she famously had a much-publicised breakdown. And after that, her father and her management company put her into a form of legal agreement that is almost entirely used for older people that are no longer of sound mind. They actually use this facet of US law to take away pretty much all her rights as a human being. Conservatorship. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for that. I was struggling to find the term in my head. But this is almost entirely reserved for people that are suffering from dementia um, and their their assets and their wealth when they get to that phase in their life that they are no longer mentally able to sufficiently enact their will upon them. This has been applied to Britney Spears. And there's a huge movement going on called the Free Britney movement because a lot of fans believe 
that through her Instagram page and through her social media, she's been sending coded messages to the rest of the world asking for help and rescue. So really bizarre setup here. I mean, this is a bizarre documentary for a start. This is coming out via the New York Times, um, who as a, they, they do little short pieces on YouTube and all that. I haven't actually seen a fully fledged documentary from them before. This is an hour and fifteen minutes. It's an odd documentary in the fact that the the principal subject matter is absent because, of course, Britney Spears, although asked for the documentary, was not able to appear. Yeah, as you would imagine, her management are not into that sort of thing. Also, almost all of her management. Uh, have declined the opportunity to appear in the documentary as well. You've got a couple of, you've got like one of her ex-assistants, a couple of people who knew her when I was a kid, that sort of thing. So it's a very one-sided documentary. Let's get that out of the way immediately. This is all really based on speculation, although given some of the things shown within this documentary, that speculation, I believe, is entirely with merit. Now, as to whether she's sending coded messages through her Instagram page for fans to rescue her, I think that may be a leap of faith too far. But to see the footage that they have and the, the way that she was treated, everyone remembers Britney Spears' mental breakdown if you were following the news at that point. Shaving her head. Shaving her head, attacking a paparazzi's car with an umbrella, really, really losing her mind. And everybody had a lot of fun joking about it and making fun of her over it. And oh, Britney's gone mad. She was the butt of every talk show host's jokes. There was a, there's a horrible sequence, actually, that shows an episode of um, it's Family Fortunes in the UK. I can't remember what it's called in the US. But, you know, sort of the, you get you guess categories and how many people said this and how many people said that. I think it's the same, isn't it? It's, yeah, same. it's something like that anyway. But they had, they had one of their topics was, what has Britney Spears lost this year? And the correct answers were her husband, her mind, her hair. And everybody was having a great laugh about this. And, oh, it really makes you suck your teeth as to God. That's really, really horrible. You're talking about this person's personal life. I mean, the footage that this has of the, the paparazzi following her, we only ever really saw glimpses of this. It was like a five-second shot within a news segment about Britney Spears turned up to open a, you know, the em- opening of an envelope today. And you get this shot of all the paparazzi following her. This has got some more shots, longer shots, of the paparazzi hounding her. And it is horrendous. Absolutely horrendous. Her being mobbed by literally 200 photographers every single place she went, sitting down in a diner with her back to the wall and having maybe two feet worth of space between her and about 200 photographers just endlessly snapping photos and yelling at her, around her, is really not hard to see why that would break a human being. It's absolutely disgusting the way she was treated. Also, by the way, Justin Timberlake, who famously had a relationship with her, uh, his song, I believe it's uh, Crimea River, Yeah. the video for it is all, it's got a blonde that you never see the face of walking away from him and the song is about how much he's been hurt and how much this person has screwed him over and everything. And you look at that and you think, actually, that's really pretty horrendous, isn't it? Because they split up for reasons nobody quite knows. And he then made this huge single and video essentially saying, what a bitch Britney Spears was. And yet nobody knows the inside of the relationship. Nobody knows there was all this accusation that basically the, the narrative that they wanted to push was that Justin Timberlake was the good guy jock. And that Britney Spears was the high school slut that screwed him over. And yet there's no basis to that whatsoever. That was purely the narrative that the media picked up on because what sells more rag magazines than a child star who everybody fancies, who's written some songs that everybody likes, turning out to be a badder person. Yeah, you know, she's the she's actually the bitch in disguise. There's a lot of real misogyny behind that. And the documentary makes a really, really good job of showing actually just how disgusting that is. Yeah. And that everybody involved should really be ashamed of themselves. There's an interview with a paparazzi as well. 
where this guy says, um, he, was, he basically followed Britney Spears around constantly. And he says, um, well, the thing with Britney Spears is um, she never told us to stop. And the person behind the camera says, well, what about when she said, please stop? And he goes, well, she might have said, please stop that day, but she never ever said, please stop entirely. And you just think, you horrible piece of shit. You know what I mean? You know, you know exactly what the documentary maker is getting at. You know exactly what people mean by that. You can see from this footage now, these, these places where this guy was present with these you know, 300 strong mob of paparazzi. There was a point where he was following her around where she went to Kevin Federline's house to see her children. Kevin Federline wouldn't let her in. So he basically just followed her car as she went to the house, got um, turned away, went to the gas station with her friend to go and get something to eat. He's hounding her car constantly. Then she went back again to try and get her kids. And you just look at that and think, how could anybody, even the most robust person, go through that experience without experiencing massive mental trauma and has now been cut off from the rest of the world by her management team because they've all gone, Britney's nuts and we need to take care of her. When in reality, I think she was doing a very understandable reaction to an unbelievable, like an unprecedented amount of pressure that would make even the strongest person lose their fucking mind. So, I mean, a lot going on there. Like I said, it's definitely one-sided purely because the opposite side of the coin has refused to engage with the documentary. I think the Free Britney movement is a great thing and I think it has some real merit behind it. Again, whether she's showing coded messages or not, I think is a bit, a bit spurious. But ultimately, this is a, a horrible thing to happen to a human being. And it really does make you think, you know, whatever your opinion on Britney Spears is, nobody, and I mean nobody, should have to go through that sort of treatment. Well, you mentioning that chap who said, well, she might, she said stop that day, but she didn't say stop entirely. Mm. As far as I'm aware, terrorising someone, especially to the point that they mentally collapse, I believe that there's some legal hot water you can land in for doing stuff like that. And I would like it if that guy was in fucking jail, along with anybody else who willfully did it. Yeah, he really, really does not come off well, and nor should he. And you just end up looking at him thinking, you really are a disgusting person. You're Bag really, of shit. I, I, you know, taking pictures of celebrities, fine, whatever, but hounding them in that way is completely and utterly unacceptable. And it's a broken, what was seemingly, uh, you know, Britney Spears, I was never a fan of her music or anything, but see, you know, she seems like quite a nice person. And just actually quite an ordinary person that happened to have quite a big talent and used it to her advantage and was broken by the system. So, yeah, it's a shocking watch. Uh, it's going to be out in the UK soon if you want to watch it that way. And like I said, there's other ways of getting hold of it as well, I believe. And it's it's not pleasant. It's not the be-all and end-all. There's no great answer at the end because, of course, Britney Spears is still under this agreement. But there's certainly a big argument to be made, and this documentary makes it that she is being coerced and controlled in a way that is unacceptable. And the fact that that's still going on amid, you know, Me Too movement, women's rights, all that kind of stuff, modern, you know, um, neoliberal feminism, all that kind of stuff. Is that really acceptable? Would that have happened if it, this was a guy losing his shit and beating up a paparazzi's car with an umbrella? It makes that point too, and I think is a valid one. Well, stuff like this, you know, I'm not claiming to be... Uh some sort of arbiter and resident of the grand moral high ground where I never fuck up. But you know when people bring up works such as that, or even, say, for example, bring up the initial sensationalism behind Britney Spears' breakdown, or even stretch it out further, stuff like fucking Jeremy Carlin, and Jerry Springer, they say they watch stuff like that so they don't feel as bad about their own lives. Mm. And whenever I hear people say that, I think, oh, that's nice. Yeah. So you, you witness people in turmoil, 
and you don't empathise with them. You think, oh well, I'm I'm so glad that that's not yeah, I'm glad it's not that. me. Yeah. So you're like, oh well, that's perfectly normal. No, it's not really perfectly normal. I think it actually makes you a bit of a, a selfish sort of gleefully uh, complacent piece of shit. I think at, at the very least, that arrangement should be highly scrutinised by an independent body. I think, mm, mm. Uh, yeah, just uh, absolutely. Perhaps there is some real reason. Perhaps, yeah, perhaps there's something happening behind the scenes that she was massively suicidal or something like that, and they they decided to take that step. But it certainly doesn't feel like that. It certainly feels like a bunch of people capitalising off her immense wealth and her fragile mental state. And whether that's the truth or not. We'll never really know, I suppose, but it's definitely worthy of investigation. That's what this documentary is attempting to do. So interesting stuff. And in the well, from how you're describing it, in the words of uh, Phil Leotardo, a fucking disgrace. Mm. Yeah, 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 for sure. Okay, then, well, let's finish off with some trivia. <laughs> on a lighter note. <laughs> um, yeah, I did trivia on alienism and history of psychology. Cool. Because it's a rich subject. Well, the Scientologists will love this. <laughs> In the, I wonder if we've got any. Please write me in if you're a Scientologist. Please don't do anything to us. <laughs> the last people we need in our backs. <laughs> um, in the 5th century BC, Hippocrates publicly rejected the notion that spirits cause mental and physical disorders and instead proposed that natural elements are responsible. In particular, he agreed with Plato's assertion that the brain was at the centre of the mental process and not the heart, as Aristotle postulated in 335 BC. In the art of healing, Hippocrates outlined the symptoms of common abnormal behaviours, including depression, paranoia and mania. In On the Nature of Man, he explored the four humours, blood, yellow bile, black bile and phlegm, lovely, and described how an imbalance between them led to personality disorders. For example, Hippocrates believed that if one had too much yellow bile, one would have a propensity for anger and that too much black bile would result in one being melancholic. Hippocrates essentially laid the groundwork for identifying and describing mental disorders in a scientific rather than a supernatural manner. His theories on the four humours formed the basis of research into temperament, personality and motivation for centuries to come. I remember reading up on this stuff a few years ago. And what is? Do you remember the meaning of... I remember one, it was a phlegmatic, mm. for someone to be phlegmatic. I can't remember. Do you remember what that is? Not off the top of my head. No, no but no, but it's yeah. Sorry, I wish I knew that. I shouldn't have brought it up. <laughs> um, like all things, goes back to ancient Greece. Mm. It's really ridiculous how many things go back to ancient Greek culture. Absolutely, and, uh, the uh, advent of psychoanalysis seems to be one of them. Before the advent of psychoanalysis, that's, I must have read that subconsciously with my left eye or something. <laughs> Before the advent of psychoanalysis, at the start of the twentieth century, psychiatry and psychology were both in their infancy. Starting around the mid-19th century, psychiatrists were referred to as alienists. It was the alienist's job to study, understand, care for and assist patients in overcoming their mental alienation or illnesses. Eventually, the term alienist came to be most closely associated with the forerunners of what we today call forensic psychiatrists. As the field of clinical psychology gradually evolved during the turn of the century period, psychologists specialising in studying and profiling criminal behaviour and mentality were also commonly referred to as alienists. See, before doing my research into the show, or well, actually the show shows you on the title card at the start of every episode, I had no idea about the whole uh, alienist thing. Sigmund Freud is one of the most famous thinkers in psychology history. While many of his ideas and theories are not widely accepted by modern psychologists, he played a major role in the development of psychology. I have found that people who know that they are preferred or favoured by their mothers give evidence in their lives of a peculiar self-reliance and an unshakable optimism which often bring actual success to their possessors, Freud once suggested. What about your mum and your dad, according to Freud? 
Yeah, Oedipus and Electra. Freud's early education and work was focused on neurology. After studying the sexual organs of the eel via dissection, he moved to comparing the brains of vertebrates and invertebrates. For six years, Freud dissected the brains of frogs, crayfish and lampreys, describing the medulla oblongata and other than oblique components of the brain and nervous system. He also made important contributions towards the discovery of the neuron. After graduating from the University of Vienna, Freud began working at Vienna General Hospital and collaborating with fellow physician Joseph Brewer. Brewer was an advocate of treating patients via hypnosis, which intrigued Freud. One of Brewer's patients, known as Anna O., seemed to recall unpleasant memories only when under the influence of hypnotic suggestion. Freud travelled to Paris to learn more from other physicians using hypnosis, but when he returned to Vienna in 1886 and owned his own practice, he began to step away from the practice. Patients simply relaxing on his couch seemed to produce a similar recall effect. Wow. Hmm. So hypnosis not needed, just lie on a couch and tell me about your problems. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, crazy sig. And last little fact here, and I thought this was really interesting. Wonder Woman is a famous and beloved comic book character, but many people might be surprised that she was actually created by a psychologist named William Moulton Marston. Marston is remembered for creating the systolic blood pressure test, which later became an important element of modern polygraph tests. Moulton had noticed that all of the great comic book characters of the day, Superman, Batman, Captain America, etc., were typified by a blood-curdling masculinity. He conceived the idea of a female superhero that instead relied on her strength and love to combat evil. Yet another surprising fact, Marston was in a polyamorous relationship and based the character of the two women he was romantically involved with, his wife Elizabeth and their lover, Olive Byrne. Oh, well, so she was a composite of uh, Mm. of analogues. Oh, that's really interesting that there's a, a famous superhero that we all know. And a lot of people are really into the Wonder Woman films and the Wonder Woman character, and you know, first proper female superhero. And it was created by a psychologist because he thought there was like a toxic masculinity element to conventional superheroes of the time. Well, yeah, mind blowing. I had absolutely no idea about that. See, progressive attitudes do go back a ways. Mm. Some people don't. It's very true. Yeah. Very, very true. Okie dokie, then. Well, that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. Thank you very much for listening. I hope the lizard wasn't annoying. He was annoying to us, but I hope he's not annoying to you at home. (laughs) (laughs) We love him to death, but we wish he'd stop scratching. (laughs) We're about to go and record our premium content this week. This week, we decided, because it's Valentine's Day coming up, and this will be released after Valentine's Day, but, you know, your Valentine's Day special, we would do uh, relationships in film. So, yeah, romantic relationships. So we're basically going to do uh the the good the bad and the ugly <laughs> of romantic relationships ones that got it right ones that got it wrong I've got, I've got a few tv ones as well so do i just ones that stick out essentially mm. you know and and as, as we were saying earlier that does cross an abundance of genres yeah so we're not going to be getting necessarily all gooey with lots of well we've done so many action films and serial killers and things yeah. like that it actually might be quite nice to do things about relationships no, it is good because sentimentalist goes lovey-dovey for a week. Yeah, no, because there are a lot of uh, there are a lot of prominent relationships in some really great stuff, so it's worth discussing. Hmm. So if you'd like to join us for that, please do check out cinementalist.com for a link to our Patreon page, or if you Google Cinementalist, it takes you straight there. There's also a button on the Cinementalist homepage for the Wacko Jacko blog to find Liam's writings and musings. He releases a couple every week, and they are brilliantly well written. So please do go and check them out. You can follow us at Cinementalcast on Twitter, and you can follow Liam at. Liam at the movies and my handle is at Wacko Jacko's Flicks. Excellent. So, yeah, hope to see you over on the premium content. If not, we'll see you on the free one next week. Anything to add, Liam? Thank you very much, as always, everybody. Hope you enjoyed the show. And, uh, yeah, if you uh, are familiar with any of the titles, then you are. <laughs> and if you're not, 
If you're not, go check them out, except the ones that were rubbish. Apart from Space Weavers. It's apart from Space yeah. Weavers because it's not good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, guys. Hope to see you on the next one, if not next week. Thank you. <laughs>